Hey church, Pastor Cody here, and I just want to say thank you for stopping by and joining us in worship today. And while we're super excited that you're hanging out with us for this message, we also want to remind you that this is really just um, a supplemental resource that cannot and will not replace the local church. So while um, we're, we're glad that you're here, while we're glad that you're encouraged and, and, and uh, challenged and shaped by the Word of God that's being preached today, we also want to um, let you know that this is really just a substitute and in no way should forsake the uh, gathering together of the local church body. We believe that the local church is God's plan A in speaking the gospel. So please come hang out with us here at rest um, this Sunday morning with us or um, go find another Bible-believing church. Jesus is preparing the church um, that's close to you. I mean, he's challenged you to get plugged in there. Um, Jesus loves the church. And we love Jesus and we believe that we can love Jesus better by being locally connected and serving her well. So um, just jump right in with us and we're glad you're here. Good morning. Good morning. morning. Uh, You know, I was just thinking it must have been a real sweet thing for you, the Cruz family. Um, Singing this morning, God, you never lost a battle, right? Mm. Man. Um, man, God is so good. Uh, how many of you last week left service and went to Burger King afterwards? How many of you had it your way? Just raise your hand. A few of you. Well, I'm glad you're hanging out with us this morning. You know, whenever I was growing up, uh, my, my grandma at my grandma's house, what we would do a lot of times in the evening time is we would go and, and we would play all sorts of games, card games around our kitchen table. And uh, we played all sorts of different games. You know, she was the original uh, card shark, so to speak. And, and kind of our go-to game uh, was gin rummy. Any rummy fans in the house? A few of us? Okay. Okay. So if you're not familiar with rummy, every, every person gets about 10 cards. That, thank, thank you, Molly. for let, We stole these from the children this morning to use. God needed them. Uh, but in Rummy, you, you give everybody out about 10 different cards, and, and what you try to do is you try to get a, the same sequence of cards, or you try to get the same suit of cards, and, and what you're doing, or what we did, is we played on a point-based system, and so it was really the first to 100 points, and so as you would, as you would lay down your, your runs, or sequences, or suits, or whatever, you would also discard some cards and pick up some other ones, and what you didn't want to happen is, at the end of the game, you didn't want to be the one left with all of the, the cards stacked in in your own hand. You wanted to get rid of all of them. And then if you got rid of all of your cards, if you were discarding your last one, you would say the words, anybody know? Rummy, right? Rummy. Tell your neighbor, rummy. Rummy. Now my grandma, she always seemed to have uh, some sort of expansion pack, Josh, whenever we would play cards, uh, because she would uh, go underneath the table a few times and she would cheat, believe it or not. And, uh, And I would cheat with her too. Uh, but I just told you that she cheated first because I felt like you would judge her less as an old lady than you would judge me. But we would cheat um, underneath the tables. And one of the big key points in Rummy is that you want to you wanna hold your cards where others don't know what you have. Uh, that way uh, you, you can protect what you have. You guard kind of what's yours and you don't want to give the other team an advantage. So it's just like the old song used to say, you got to know when to hold them and you got to know when to fold them, right, right, that was, that was almost like on lines of amen there, <laughs> I'm maybe a little bit worried, um, well this morning I've got a deck of, a deck of cards in my hand, um, literally, but also uh, proverbially, proverbially, uh, metaphorically speaking, and this deck of cards in my hand is on Romans chapter 1 verses 26 and 27, and it is one of, if not the most, uh, controversial scriptures throughout the whole of the Bible. It's actually the longest section that speaks about homosexuality uh, in, the, in the Bible. And so what I want to do this morning with this, these high stakes is I want to show you my hand right off the bat when it comes to these two verses. Both of them are about uh, sexual immorality. And so what I need you to know right off the start of this is that my viewpoint, I don't want you sitting there wondering what's this guy's position. My viewpoint this morning is, is coming from, I'll call it a classical 
Christian worldpoint or worldview and ecology. This is a Christian sermon. And this is coming from someone who is a Christian. And, and, and this classical view has to deal with sex, sexuality, gender, and marriage. And I believe that this position, that is, it's consistent with Jesus in the scripture. It's consistent with the apostle Paul. It's consistent with all of the apostles. It's a consistent thought process from the Old Testament all through the, the New Testament scriptures along with almost every Christian around the globe and virtually every Christian in the first 19 and a half centuries of church history. And so at rest, we, we believe, I'm showing you my cards right off the bat, at rest we believe that, that, that the Bible places homosexual behavior, no matter the level of commitment or, or the mutual effect, uh, affection in the category of sexual immorality, all of our bylaws at rest reflect this position. And so what we do is we oppose anything that's outside of a heterosexual, uh, monogamous, complementarian viewpoint this morning. And so what I'm going to do, though, is I'm going to work really hard to bring this word to you today from a, a, a biblical perspective um, one that's, that's, that, that, that is faithfully and pastorally and sincerely and historically and culturally aware because I understand that the cards that I'm holding in these two verses this morning, that they're really, really delicate. That this is a, a kind of a hot topic in, 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 in our culture. And so this morning, I, I need to say three things before we really get into our text today. Three things. Number one is that when we, when we talk about this conversation, we need to have a speech that's seasoned with salt. We need to have a speech that's seasoned with salt. Um, the scripture on this says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Let your speech always be gracious and seasoned with salt. Because maybe you're here this morning. And this topic's not just ethereal cloud talk for you, but it's actually, it's, it's really, really personal to you because maybe, maybe perhaps someone um, in your family is dealing with this. Perhaps uh, you're, you're like me and not all of your family operates from, from a biblical worldview. Maybe, maybe it's your aunt that wrestles with this. Maybe it's your mom or your kids um, or, or, or your friends that wrestle and, and struggle with this, and if that is you, what I want to say to you is that I want you to know that your feelings, they matter, that your stories, they do matter, but ultimately to be faithful to God, you and I, we have to search God's word in the scriptures to see what matters the most. And so please don't, don't just right off the bat discount this messenger this morning as some bigot as, as uh, uh, right at the start if our real problem is with the scriptures. So we need some seasoned salt. Number two, I need to mention this. We are unapologetically Christians here at Rest Church. And, and what I mean when I say that we are unapologetically Christians in this particular culture war, as Christians, we push back. But it's not from a sense, we're not, we don't push back with pride and we don't push back with, with arrogance or entitlement or violence, but you and I, we push back with the gospel because we know in the gospel there is a better way. And so in, in, in the beginning chapter here, we read Romans 1, 16 and 17, and I have to agree with Paul this morning that I'm not ashamed in the gospel and the power of the gospel for it is the power of salvation for all who would believe. And so just right off the bat, if you think I'm going to tiptoe around this topic this morning, you got me messed up. And, and, and so when we push back with the power of the gospel, what that means is that we don't, we, don't, we don't try to make it more palpable to digest because when we do that, all we're doing is we're removing the power of the gospel. And so we are unapologetically believers. And, and lastly, number three, homosexuality, hear me on this, is not the storyline of the scripture. Homosexuality is not the storyline of the scripture. The Bible is not about God standing up in front of humanity and giving a lecture on same-sex marriage. That's not the story of scripture. And even though homosexuality is one of the most uh, pressing and painful controversies in our day, that is not the controversy that the church has been, uh, that's not the conversation that the church has been praying about and singing about for the past 2,000 years. 
So even in our right conclusions, they can be handled in the wrong ways where where what we do is we focus on other people's sins and, and we ignore our own and that would be the wrong way. And so I need to be really clear on this, that this, today's message, it's not, it's, not the, it's not the good people against the bad people. The Bible doesn't see it like that. The Bible says that we're all the bad people rebelling against the only one good person who is God. And so we're all in the same boat this morning in that regard. So church, instead of us yelling at our neighbor, hey, don't be gay. Instead of that, our our starting point is vastly, vastly different. We are going, hey, I want you to know that God is so for you. God is is so for you. He loves you so much that he'll take you as you are, but but he loves you so much that he won't leave you where you are. That's That's the story of the gospel. And so my goal is not to beat you up today. It is to build you up from the the truth of God's word. And so whatever else I might say this morning, or we conclude about the scriptures, if you and I are using the Bible to inflict wounds instead of heal them, then that means at a bare minimum, we have missed the point of the whole letter of Romans and we have missed the point of the gospel. And so if you have your Bible this morning, turn with me to Romans chapter one. We'll, uh, We'll, we'll deal these cards out together in verses 26 and, and 27. This is part two of when God lets you have your way. This is sexuality in scripture. Do you love Jesus, Rush Church? Are you ready to study his word this morning? Amen, amen. Tell your neighbor real quick, say, hey, rummy, rummy. This is what it says for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving themselves the due penalty for their error. This morning a big truth we're going to carry with us uh, throughout this is that you can have it your way. But God tells us in his word that there's a better way. You can have it your way, but there is a better way. And so I'll pray for us, and then we'll start this conversation. Jesus, we, uh, hmm. first I want to I wanna pray for our kiddos, God, um, the ones that may be in this room, and the ones in our kids, God, and I just pre- I pray that you would just protect their innocence. Um, man, just guard, guard their little hearts, guard their little minds this morning, Jesus. And I'm thinking about the people in this room right now, the people watching online, and maybe, maybe it's someone who's just a, you know, a Christian leader who is trying to hear more and learn more about your word because they have some people under them or around them they need to give some wisdom to, and I pray for them. And I'm thinking about maybe the skeptic who came in today or is listening, and, and maybe they're just wondering what the Bible really does have to say about this topic. And Jesus, I'm also, I'm also thinking this morning about that teen, that preteen that's here, that's listening online. God, that they're, they're wrestling with, with this and they're just trying to figure out and navigate, God, what to believe. And so Jesus, I, I pray that you would just bring a, a, a tender grace through me, God, on this, um, on this tough topic. And that, Lord, you would, you would remove our, our presuppositions, God, and our barriers so that we could see your truth today. And so, Lord, I pray that you would open up, God, our, our heads and open up our hearts. And God, ultimately, as we open up our Bibles to see what you have to say to us. And it's in Jesus' good name we pray. God's people said, amen, amen. You can have it your way, but there is... A better way. So, in the opening, I'm missing, I mentioned this in case you missed it that homosexuality, uh, the, the behavior of it, it falls into the category biblically of sexual immorality. And so, look, we're going to hit there just for a minute before we, we break this text apart so we all get on the same page. And 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, the Apostle Paul, who's our writer here also, um, today he says this that the sexual immorality in this verse is directly tied to your sanctification. So hear that. Sexual immorality is, is, is d- deeply tied to your sanctification. This is what he says for the, this is the will of God. 
and your sanctification that you would abstain from sexual immorality. So the, the will of God for believers, for Christians is really clear here. For us to abstain, to stay away from sexual immorality. And so abstain means both in our, in our minds and also in our methods. It means in our thoughts and it also means in our works. But what exactly is sexual immorality? When Paul kind of throws this word out, um, what, what does that mean whenever he's talking about sexual immorality? Well, it's a lot of things um, because the word that's used here for sexual immorality is porneia. And we've talked about this before. Porneia means illicit sexual behavior. It means um, sexual immorality. And so for, for Paul, he uses it a lot, in a lot of ways as like a junk drawer. Do you have a junk drawer at your house? Kind of everything goes into it. Um, that's kind of a thought here for the Apostle Paul when it comes to porneia. And so sexual immorality, this this includes, but not, is not explicit to um, fornication, adultery, polygamy, uh, swinging. This is rape, incest, bestiality, homosexuality, prostitution, pagan sexual activity, pornography, impure thoughts that lead to impure actions. It's filth. It's your desires of your flesh. It's anything outside of God's design for a heterosexual marriage or celibacy. And so listen, just a, a couple quick hit verses on this so you can see this picture in your mind. I replaced the word sexual immorality in these verses with its original porneia. Listen to this, 1 Corinthians 6, 13. I'll fly through these. The body's not meant for porneia, but it's meant for the Lord. Verse 18, flee from porneia. Every other sin a person commits is outside of the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. But among you, there must not even be a hint of, this is Ephesians 5, a hint of porneia or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Now from that list I just gave you in 1 Corinthians, Pastor Cody, are you preaching next week? Pastor Johan next week is going gonna, is gonna to give us another list to add to this list. It, but from these lists that we see today and we'll see next week, we, what we conclude is that we are all guilty just in different ways. We are all guilty, but we are guilty in different ways. And I, and I won't say this, I won't go through all of this again because I said it before, but whenever it comes to sexual immorality in your life, there is one word you need to know that you need to hold on to when it comes to sexual immorality. It won't be on the screen. I should have put it on there, but it's flee. Say flee. Flee. In the scriptures, we're, we're told to stand firm. We're told to guard ourselves, to, to, to gird up our loins and all of these other things. But when it comes to sexual immorality, the command is to flee. And so when, when you're, you're around sexual immorality, you're, you're sexually tempted in any way, your job is to get your Usain Bolt on and get out of there, okay? You run, you flee, say flee. We flee. So if you, are, if you are struggling with any sort of, of desire to sin sexually, you flee. What am I saying? At a real base level. Like if you're, if you're wondering about whether or not your, your naked boyfriend or girlfriend is a test from God, it's not. Flee. Flee. Run away. That, that's kind of the, the generalization of, of sexual immorality. So where am I going with, with this? What I'm, what I'm saying is that, that, that homosexuality is not a worse sexual sin than other sexual sins because all sin is sin. Now hear me on this. All sin, from one standpoint at least, is, is the sledgehammer that breaks the glass of God's holy standard. All sin does that. All sin breaks God's law. All sin breaks his standard of holiness. It is all equal in, in the sense that it is equally offensive to God. Now, there are different earthly consequences that come with our sin. Sure, Yohan says we never sin alone. But there are two ways for us to misunderstand God's word to this point. And it's this, when it comes to homosexuality. And in some cases, we say too little. We say too little. Little, some churches and some pastors, and in an effort to 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 stay relevant, in an effort um, in 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 this way to attempt to seem loving and welcoming um, to homosexual people, they have downplayed or denied the very clear teaching on Scripture, and they've said far far too little. And on the flip side of this, what some churches and some pastors, some of us have done is we've we've said too much. 
What we've done in some cases in a very self-righteous way is that we see homosexuality as the sin that matters the most. And so we don't, we don't seek to love or welcome gay people at all. Like you might, you might go out of your way to walk alongside of your neighbor who has committed adultery and, and help them back to the path, but for maybe not for a homosexual. And so in, in a lot of ways we've said too much and, and, we'll, and we'll tend to look at it like this. Pull up that dentist picture. This dentist picture. We, we tend to look at, like, look at it like this. Like we clearly see the crooked tooth. This is great marketing, by the way. We clearly, we notice the crooked tooth right off the bat, and sometimes we forget we're missing an eyebrow, right? <laughs> Yet what Paul's doing here is he, he's not doing either of those things and saying too much or too little. Paul's not saying, it, it, he's not going, it doesn't matter what you do, God doesn't care as long as you're happy. But Paul's also not saying that what you do matters so much that, that I can't love you or witness to you because you're beyond the gospel, See, you and I, we only understand, we only grasp hold of the true gospel as Paul did when you and I realized that we are the worst sinner, that we are the worst, that Jesus came to die for, for me, and so if he came to die for me, there's no one that he didn't come to die for. Now, if, if you've been with us the past few weeks, this is going to be a clearer picture as we get into our text today, because what Paul's been describing for us from really from verse 18 in chapter one of Romans up, up until now is that he's been describing this, this progression of sin that, that, that happens. And, and just really quickly, uh, Paul, what he did is he said that God has revealed himself through creation. Like you can just look up and around. And so because of that, no one has an excuse when it comes to knowing God. We, we can all see that this is divine design around us. Yet what we've done in verse 18 of chapter, of chapter one of Romans is that we've all, we've all suppressed that truth of God. And then Paul goes on, he says, not only do we suppress and reject that truth, we've also done this exchange, we've exchanged the glory of our God for these, these foolish idols around us, for, for these created things. We've stopped worshiping the creator God and we worshiping, are worshiping and serving these created things. And, and so as a, as a result of exchanging the truth of God for a lie, what God has done to, for sinners is is that he has handed sinners over to their sin. He said, hey, if you want it your way, you can have it your way. As we talked about last week, it's been this, it's been this picture of this continual downward spiral of depravity. That's the picture. And so in verses 26 and 27, what we're talking about today is it's just the next step in this downward progression that Paul's talking about. And he's talking about, remember he's writing to pagan Gentiles, not believers, he's writing to pagan Gentiles uh, over, uh, over their uh, progression of sin where they're being handed over to their dishonorable passions and, and they've exchanged now, it's another exchange, they've exchanged natural relations with members of the opposite sex for unnatural relations for those of the same sex. And now don't miss this, don't miss this. Paul is, what Paul is getting at here is he's saying, when you see this, this is a visible walking picture of human depravity. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, you, you can look and you can see this. This is the clearest expression of the depths of our perversity. And, and he says that this sin of homosexual behavior, that, it, that it's, most, it's most representative of our radical, the radical nature of our fall. And so you can have it your way, but there, there's, there's a better way. So turning to verses 26 and 27. You're like, finally, is he ever going to get to the verses this morning? Verses 26 and 27. I'm going to bring these two together first, then we'll split them apart. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their uh, women, exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the, the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for for 
one another. Now, now Paul here in this text, of course, he's writing to pagan Gentiles, okay? But also what Paul has to say in this text, it's culturally relevant for all places and all peoples in all times because it's a matter of creation order. That's the whole, the whole line of thought he's appealing from if you read back in Romans as we talked about. And so just up front, again, there's, there's, not, there's really not a ton of scripture in the scriptures dealing with uh, homosexuality. They're, they are there, but one really good reason for this is because this just wasn't an issue for the believers in the church. Paul's writing to pagans here. For in, in, in the first early part of Christianity, this was a non-issue for believers. This was a non-issue issue, uh, for, for, for Judaism. This wasn't something that was debated or questioned from a Christian worldview. Everyone knew this is what the pagans do, not the believers. Yet now we see here, Paul, he has given people up. He's handed them over for a second time by pouring out his wrath on believers by him removing his hand again. He removes his hand to give them over to their sin. And the reason that I bring these two verses stacked together at first is is to point out, look at the text, that both the women and the men have exchanged, that's that word metalassoed we learned last week, they've exchanged natural relations for what is contrary to nature. And so the apostle Paul, he doesn't he doesn't just he doesn't just come up with this standard here. He doesn't just pull this out of out of, out of thin air. This is what what he's been saying all along. This is a thread that's consistent with the totality of the scripture established in the very very beginning when God first said. And so if you if you disagree with this you're not just you're not just disagreeing with me. You're not just disagreeing with Paul. You're disagreeing with God's order and with God. And so, but, but what does Paul mean there in the text when he says, contrary to nature and natural relations? Contrary to nature and natural, what, what's the Apostle Paul talking about? Well, the words nature and natural, Paul's not using those to talk about the way the world currently is. That's not what he's using that in. Paul's not appealing to any sort of cultural standard. Instead, Paul's talking about the way that we were before the fall, before sin entered the, 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 the world. And, and so the, the natural relations part here, it's not even, Paul's not even appealing to our desires here. He's appealing to the state of our design. He's appealing to Imago Dei. Imago Dei is a Latin phrase. It means the image of God. That we were created and, and to reflect God's image. And, and, and this goes back to Genesis 1.27. As Moses said, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. God created us male and female by nature to have natural relations with, with, when, in regards to sexuality within a heterosexual normativism. And so at the bare, bare, bare minimum here, there is this standard that God has set in place for what is natural in regards to sex, in regards to gender, and in regards to sexuality. And so if, if, if you and I, if we have been created in the Imago Day of God and we are meant to, to reflect like the moon, God's glory, this means also as we reflect God, we must deflect other things that don't reflect his image and design. And, and so let, let me bring you back to that picture again in, in Eden, before sin came into the world, give you this picture of this design. In the beginning in Genesis, there was a, there was a perfect garden and in that garden there was a perfect man and a perfect woman that were created um, by our perfect God, and they lived together, and, and they lived together according to their male and their female gender roles, and, and, and they married, and this was followed by uh, heterosexual married sex, which obviously resulted in, in children, and this is the design of what Paul means when he's saying natural. Therefore, any deviation out, outside of this is un. Natural, this is Genesis 126 and 27. Then God said, let us, talking about the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion, the birds, the fish, the beasts. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male 
and female, he created them. So in Genesis 2, 7, Adam, he was formed by the dust of the ground and the breath from God's nostrils, and God gave Adam male genitalia. God then uh, put Adam into a spiritual anesthesia or of some sort, amnesia of some sort. He goes to sleep. God then, from Adam, removes one of his ribs, closes the, ri- the, the, the side back up, and from Adam, he fashions Eve, giving Eve female genitalia. This is Genesis 2, 21 and 22. So, so the picture is that from Adam, Adam's the ish, from Adam the Ish, there is now an Isha who is Eve. So Eve is fashioned from Adam the second coming out of the first. And, 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 and that expression of God, in this, in the, even in this creation, it was an expression um, of God about their equality. That Eve comes from Adam's side. It's a, it's a compliment. It's a complementarity that happens between Eve and Adam. And, it's, and God was saying, hey, this Isha, she is the, the complement to the Ish, and the Ish is the complement to the Isha. And so God, he, uh, he looks back over all of his creation. He's like, Kyler, he's like, man, this, this is good. But then he looks at the Ish and the Isha, man and woman, male and female, the crown of his creation, and he goes, but this, this is very good. With all of, their, all of their pleasures, with all of their passions serving as the crown of God's creation, the human body, male and female, we are the most beautiful thing that the creator God has ever created. And what we should realize in this account is that from the very beginning of the story that the, the Bible is binary, it is fixed between male and and female. This is not toxic. This is not bigoted. This is not hate speech. This is God's pre-planned and perfect natural order. Well, next for us in Imago Day, he's not only has created us male and female, but he's also created your sexuality. This is what natural is talking about here, but also through our nature God has given me and you a really good plan of how to express our relations. And so in Genesis 1.28, God blesses them and he says to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So long, 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 long before there were date nights and long before there were divorce lawyers, (laughs) there was God and he was overseeing the first covenant marriage between male and female in his plan being executed. This is his blueprint. It says in Genesis 2, you can turn there if you want, that the two shall become one flesh. So the man and the woman in their relations, that's the word that we're pulling from Romans 1, 26 and 27, they are no longer two, but they are now one. It's one plus one equals one. This is one man, one wife, one life. And not only in sexual intimacy does a man and and, and a woman come together um, for union, but it's also this picture of a reunion as the rib is being brought back to the side. The Isha has come back to the Ish. And so in marriage covenant, we don't have to get too deep into this. We won't. um, you You have been fitted together to snap together by God. It's a prophetic puzzle where your anatomy has been created to fit together, to complement one another, just as your right hand complements your left hand. And so in Genesis, the very beginning, the picture of this creation narrative, God is saying, I've designed male and female biologically and anatomically to fit together. He's saying, I've, I've designed male and female and gender to fit together. I've designed them in their mentality, in their thinking to fit together. I've designed them in their emotions to fit together as one. This is the blessing of God soldering your souls together as one. And so this complementarity to the nature of, of, of man and woman, there's, there's also this picture of creation itself God creates for us these cosmic couples, right? 
Uh, in the very beginning, he says there's, there's, there's plants and there's animals. There's the, the heavens and the earth. There's the morning. There's the evening. There's the, there's the day and, and the, there's the night. And what he's saying through creation is that both of them are, are, are unique, but neither one of them are interchangeable for the other. And so Paul here, right? Genesis is this creation story in Romans 1, 26 or 18 through 27 is kind of this anti-creation story of uh, Genesis 1 is God bringing creation to happen. And, and Romans 1 is about creation declining. And, and, and so Paul, he, he, he is appealing to desire in a lot of ways, but he's appealing to design through this, that, that you've been created by design. And so if we conclude, you and I, that men and women are interchangeable, in our sex, in our gender, in our sexuality. Not only did the apostle Paul give us the wrong creation narrative of male and female, but he gave us the wrong meta-narrative of creation itself. And so Paul is clear here that homosexuality violates God's design and his purpose of creation. And he's saying, look, you, you, you can have it your way, but there's a better way. And so Paul, in the, in the creation narrative, as I said, he's, he's talking about how God brings us to fruition and, then, and, and it kind of climaxes with the crown of creation with male and female. And then in Romans 1, he's talking about this progression, this picture of depravity. And, and he starts off with the ladies in verse 26. Let's read that, verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up. He, give, he gave them over again. Two dishonorable passions for their women's exchange, for their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Now, I don't know if you're like me or not, but whenever I read this verse, look at it here, uh, verse 26, it's almost like somewhere between the first half of verse 26, where it says, for this reason, God gave them up. And then the second half of verse 26, it's almost like someone came to the apostle Paul and was like, hey, you gotta, but you gotta get, you gotta get more specific on this, Paul. And Paul's like, Okay, and he says, I'm gonna bring in front of you two, two examples, Romans, so that you can look around your culture and see this picture. You can see this walking, literal picture of this. And the first one that he mentions is, is female homosexuality, which is lesbianism. And Paul communicates here in verse 26, he says, look at the text, that this is an unnatural and that it's a dishonorable sexual passion that's acted upon a romantic over-desire that happens between two women. Now, Paul here, he's not, just, he's not just picking homosexuality out of the air as a random feature of going, hey, look at these pagans and all of this wicked stuff that they do. His point is that when society marries an idolatrous system, the imago day of God begins to deconstruct. And so, so Paul's like, do you wanna see the walking evidence of the power of sin whenever it goes unchecked. He says, look at here at female homosexuality. And, and Paul, in this text, he doesn't even use normal words uh, for, for men and women here. He used totally different words altogether. He uses male and female because he's making it clear that now he's talking about categories that describe sexuality outside of natural human terms. And I think it's really interesting to me, at least that the Apostle Paul, that he mentions the women first here in this text and, and, and not the men. He starts off with the females. Now, when I look this up, the most recent a data poll that I could find. It spanned from 2012 to 2020, and it showed that from Americans, those who identify as LGBT by gender, it was this, 4.9% male, it'll be on the screen, and 6.5% female. Now, this is probably more than this now, but I wanted to put this stat in front of you for you to see that statistically right now that there are, there are more women, more females, who identify as LGBT than there are men. Females are, uh, are uh, um, embracing sexual fluidity at much higher rates. And I'm not saying this to give the men a pass in, in any way. But for Paul here, this question in the text, it's, it's, not, it's not about passion as much as it's about dishonorable passion. Look at, look at that, the words he used, dishonorable passion. Because somebody might come to you, they might come to me and they go, hey, B, but we we really love each other this is real this is passionate and, and and i think paul would say back to that but 
Is it honorable or dishonorable? Does this honor God or is this honoring you? And, and, and so in the same vein of this, is this good for me or, or does this bring glory to God? I found this um, letter from a former lesbian. Her name's Jackie Phil Perry. And, and she writes this letter called uh, A Love Letter to a Lesbian. And, and this, is a, this is kind of a long quote, but I think it's worth our attention this morning. And so I'm gonna read it. It will be on the screen. She says, I understand how it feels to be in love with a woman. I too was a lesbian. I had same-sex attractions. As I grew up, those feelings never subsided. At the age of 17, I finally made the decision to pursue these desires. I entered into a relationship with a young lady who became my first the first time we kissed, I felt extremely natural, as if this feeling is what I've been missing all along. She goes on to say, on October 2008, at the age of 19, my superficial reality was shaken up by a deeper love, one from the outside, one that I'd heard of before but never experienced. And for the first time, I was convicted of my sin in a way that made me consider everything I loved or idolized and its consequences. I don't think it's a stretch to say that this may be your dilemma as well. You see what God has to say about homosexuality, but your heart doesn't utter the same sentiment. God's word says that it's sinful. Your heart says that it, this feels right. God's word says it's abominable. Your heart says it's delightful. God's word says it's unnatural. Your heart says it's normal. Do you see that there is a clear divide between what God's word says and how your heart feels? So which voice should you believe? Wrapping this up, I looked at my life and saw that I had been in love with everything except God. And these decisions would ultimately be the death of me eternally. My eyes were open and I began to believe everything God says in his word. I began to believe that what he says about sin, death, and hell were completely true. And, and if, if, if you're wrestling with that, you can read the rest about this letter on desiringgod.org. Um, but church, the corrupting effects or consequences of the fall alongside your and, and, and my propensity for self-deception, what we do is we, we have to base our ethical and moral decisions on more than something that is subjective, on more than just what feels right. Otherwise, you and I will accept a counterfeit love every time, and it always leads to death. See, whereas God created you in the very beginning to be naked and unashamed in a covenant heterosexual marriage, when you engage in sexual immorality, it's gonna leave you naked and shamed. Whereas God created the rainbow and he placed it over creation as this picture and this reminder that every time we look up and it rains of his faithfulness, Satan has taken this and counterfeited it. He's done a rebranding campaign on the rainbow that now it's a walking picture of our unfaithfulness back to God. It's a counterfeit. Being reborn with a new gender identity, that's the counterfeit of being born again. Whenever people say they are coming out of the closet, this is, this, this is a counterfeit of baptism. Because in baptism, you, you go to tell outwardly what's happened and changed inwardly. Where, where, is all of this, where is all of this coming from? It's coming from a false God that, and a false religion that has a false view on sexuality that tries to bring a false uh, picture of salvation. God has created in his order from the beginning and, and Satan has come alongside of him and he's counterfeited. It's an exchange of the truth for a lie and Isaiah 520 warns us because God loves us. He says this, listen to this verse. He says, whoa, say whoa, whoa to those who call evil good and good evil. What I'm saying is that you and I, we cannot just follow our hearts. What we need to do is we need to follow God's heart. So when the Bible says, hey, hey, don't lean on, don't lean on your own understanding. It's being super serious about this because your heart, it is deceitful. Your emotions, they're going to fluctuate like the weather. Your understanding, it doesn't see the overall big picture like God does. But what, so what can we hold on to? Well, we can hold on to who God is because God, he never changes. God is someone we can always trust because he's always the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we can trust his truth. Paul is saying to the ladies, he's going, here's a way 
in which God has in his wrath given humans over to their over desires. This is a consequence of their own choices that you can have it your way, but there is a better way. Moving on to verse 27. He's, he's coming to the men now. He says, and the men likewise, they do the same thing. Give up natural relations with women and, and they're consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men. So the sinful men were doing the same sort of sinful, unnatural acts as the, the sinful females were doing. And Paul says there in the text that they were consumed with passion. This is a, this is a lust. This is an, an, an over-desire of the, of the flesh that led to an external action or consequence of, he uses the word, shameless acts. And, 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 and that's like, that's the beginning problem of a consuming passion, right? You don't have to be a genius to understand that. It, it consumes you. It, it eats you alive. And so Paul here, this isn't even about the intensity of the desire, okay? But, but he's saying that, it, that this corresponds to the men giving up natural uh, sexual complementarity with women. And then they committed, he says, shameless sexual acts with other women. Man, it's a very clear case for you and for me of a particular belief leading to a particular behavior. And so this is the where the line is clearly drawn for us. Do you take captive the thought or do you let the thought take captive of you and consume you with dishonorable actions, dishonorable passions, because church, there is a major, major difference between someone who struggles against a sinful temptation that they know is wrong and they want to defeat versus someone who gives into their sin, indulges in it, becomes proud of it, and then evangelizes to other to join them in their sin. First John 3, 9 says to us clearly, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born again, he's been born of God. The Bible clearly teaches you and I that same-sex sexual intimacy is a sin. It places homosexual behavior, no matter the level of commitment or mutual affection in that category of sexual immorality. And, and, and what I'm not saying is I'm not, I'm not just throwing a blanket out and, and talking about those that find themselves attracted to the same-sex persons, nor am I commenting about whether those desires are consciously chosen or, or whether those desires, when, it, when they become sinful, that's not what I'm talking about. I am talking about the self-determined activity of those who are actively engaged in sexual behavior with the same sex. See, when you and me, when we read Romans 1, 26 and, and 27, there's just no way, there's, there's no way for us to rescue the Apostle Paul. There's no way. There's no way for us to rescue him from his strong condemnation against this. We can't make unclean mean clean. We can't make contrary to, to nature mean uh, out of the ordinary or against my personal orientation. We can't make male and female mean non-binary. And, and we'll say things like, well, what about those who are practicing homosexual Christians? And I would lovingly say back to that, that sort of person just doesn't exist because it's an oxymoron. And if you, if you believe the opposite, you have been deceived. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10 reiterates this. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, adulterers, nor men, including women who practice homosexuality. And, and he goes on and on and, and on. If you and I, if we are to be faithful to the scriptures, we can never bring an assurance of salvation to those who habitually and freely and impenitently are engaged in sinful activity. In the Bible, it is as clear as it is unpopular when it comes to persistent, unrepentant sexual sin, it leads people to hell. And when you and I disagree with this, hear me, when we disagree with this, what we're really saying without saying it is we're going, God, you're a liar. Because God said in the very beginning, he said, hey, this is good. 
this male and female thing, this is, this is very good. But whenever you and I, whenever we say we are not who or how or what biologically we think we should be, we are saying, God, you are a liar. Creation is not good. I am not good. You must have made a mistake. And at a real base level, what we're doing in that moment is we're asking God to repent of the sin he's committed against us because we think he's made a mistake. And that is a bold, bold statement. We are not the victim, or we, we are not the victim here. We are the villain. And so you can have it your way, but there is a better way. Wrapping this up. Whenever we go outside of that plan, there's always consequences. And so the end of 27, it frames it up. Look at 27, the end part. It says, and so receiving in themselves, both parties, the due penalty for their Paul here clearly, he says, when you take action on these attractions, it offends God. And he says the, the due penalty, there's a penalty that's coming, and the penalty might vary, right? Like the penalty might be um, God's act of wrath handing you over to your sin in that moment. So you're carrying that burden and that guilt and your shame with you. Or, or, or the due penalty might be uh, in the punishment of sin at the day of judgment. Or it might be, might be both. Either way, there is a price that has to be paid when you and I defy the law of God. And, and so this due penalty there, look at it, due penalty, it's a punishment, okay? But it's not, restri- it's not restricted to homosexuality, but it does include it. It does include it because the Bible's clear. Old Testament, New Testament, that active homosexual sex is a settled, um, unrepentant pattern of a behavior that is indicative of an attitude that has rejected the lordship of Jesus over their life. And so this is going to leave people outside of his kingdom. And so for, for me personally on this, like I don't, I, I don't wrestle with this particular temptation. And I, and I don't say that as like in a prideful way. I don't say that um, in, in a negative way, I'm just saying that I haven't necessarily walked in the shoes maybe that you are walking in, but what I can relate to is I can totally relate to trying to find your love and your identity in everything except for God. And, and here's, what, here's what's happened, church. Ultimately, it, start, it started with homosexuals starting with those that had a disordered desire that they gave into. And so in, in turn, in reality, what's happened is there's been created this really tight-knit uh, gay community. God designed you and me for community. And it's become this counterfeit community that's become their identity. And now it's moved into this whole movement through the LGBTQIA. And so hear me, identity is such a, a, a core part of that movement. And, and, and so it probably feels impossible for people to, 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 to separate themselves from that movement because th- the message that's preached is that if you decide to now hate this, it means that you hate yourself because this is your identity. That's why when things don't work out inside of that community, you can go look it up. The statistics are so high on, on depression and suicide. Because they, they had no identity and then they thought they had found it and they, it had turned out to be false and, and now they feel hopeless. The church, what we have to do is to spread the truth of Christ, man, and it feels a lot of times like we are, are losing to a movement that has to convince people to do these things that are just clearly against nature and science. Even in their openly sinful lives, sometimes they are, they are doing a better job of love and community and identity than the church has done in a lot of ways. And so look, I'm not, I'm not standing up here today, I'm not trying to rewrite the story of Christianity in some heroic epic of, of one long unbroken strand of heroism. That's not what I'm saying. The church is broken and I get that. And so we too, we too, we need repentance. And I admit that charge against us because for far too long in far too many places, the, the, unfortunately and painfully, the judgment calls against us have been accurate. You, we have grown accustomed to greed and gluttony and gossip and judgmentalism and dispensable marriages. Divorce is a serious problem in Jesus' church. 
And so we need to own our junk in all areas. But let me just say this. Homosexuality and divorce are not identical issues. Because according to the Bible, the former is always wrong while the latter is not always wrong. Or I'll put it like this. Every divorce is the result of sin, but not every divorce is sinful. And so, yes, there are, there are, there are plank-eyed Christians among us, but the remedy against negligence isn't more negligence. That's not the cure. The cure is truth. And so, in one sense, we shouldn't make too much of of homosexual sin, because Paul's, you know, he, he's got this long list of sin he got to smack all the pagan Gentiles with in 29 through 31. Yet the fact remains, and we can't run away from it, we can't just soft pedal through it, that Paul calls out homosexual relations, behavior, activity, as a model example of what happens when the human heart suppresses the truth of God. And so we must, we must face this indictment squarely in the face. God's word levies this against those individuals and those churches and those pastors who give approval to those who practice this. And so look, believe it or not, heterosexuality, you may not know this, heterosexuality is not a fruit of the spirit. It's not. But self-control is. And if you wrestle with this, listen to me. I want you to know that being heterosexual is not the aim. Jesus is the aim. But what happens is that as you aim toward Jesus and the the spirit produces self-control in you, your self-control through heterosexuality will naturally become one of the byproducts of aiming at Jesus. Because when you, when you go, you're like, oh man, God, is, God, is, God has called me to die to myself. He's called me to, to, to pick up my cross and die. And then you actually, you actually accept that call. Game changer. Game changer. You will struggle and you will be tempted, church, in many ways for all of your life. But coming to Jesus, listen, Coming to Jesus means not only have you been freed from the penalty of sin, but you've also been set free from the power of sin. You will struggle, you will be tempted, but this means that with Christ in you, you now have the power to flee from whatever it was that used to have power over you. You can have it your way, but there's a better way. There's a better way. And it's like, man, yeah, amen. Pastor, we all need grace. We all need, we all need forgiveness. The, the church is supposed to be full of sinners. But here's the rub. The community family partnership of the church, just like the membership of heaven, it is made up of born-again repentant sinners turned saints. And so if you and I, if we preach a gospel that has no repentance, then you and I, we are preaching something other than the gospel. If, if we think that, that people can find a savior without, without forsaking their, their sin, then we really don't know what kind of savior that Jesus really is. And like no doubt the church, yes, it is for broken people. It is for imperfect people. It is, it is for broken people though who hate in themselves what is broken. It is for imperfect people who have renounced their sinful imperfections. And like, of course, there's, there's a lot more. There's a lot more to following Jesus than repentance, but there's certainly not less. Man, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, it, it gives such bad news. Pull that verse up, 1 Corinthians. It's, it's after all of this stuff, Caleb. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, we're gonna go through 11. There's such bad news here, listen. Don't you know the unrighteous won't inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor women, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor the drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But then, listen, this is great. Then verse 11 comes in. That little phrase, I love it. And such were some of you. 
That's the story of sinners, man. Such were some of you. You used to be like this. But this Adam that's up here today, he's just somebody, that, that, that other Adam, that's somebody I used to know. Some of you used to be like this. Some of the Corinthians, they were former homosexuals. They were, they were formerly sexually immoral. They were formerly drunkards. And their God was the bottle and God forgave them and God cleansed them of their sin. And so what I'm asking you this morning is for you to let God to do that to you also. So that you can be someone also who used to be like that.